Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and happy to give you actionable ideas that will elevate your current or perhaps your future nonprofit organization. Thank you for listening. If you want to be a nonprofit leader or maybe more effective in the role you're in now, you're in the right place. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit leaders who are really on the cutting edge of our sector. And if you would do me a favor, find that share button. Usually it's a button within the episode graphic on the device you're listening right now. And you can find the icon with three dots. Lots of opportunities to share this episode. And for that, I would be grateful. Just find one other person and you'll help us continue to build a global community focused on nonprofit leadership. Well, I had a fantastic conversation in this episode with Logan Herring. He is the CEO of The Work Group, and that's WRK in Wilmington, Delaware. And we had a great conversation about his leadership journey and some of the really interesting ideas he's bringing to his leadership of that multifaceted organization. And he's going to make you think about your approach and philosophic ideals behind your leadership style. For example, Logan doesn't like the term nonprofit, and he'll explain exactly why he feels that way and the terminology he's using instead. We also dive into multiple topics that will give you practical guidance for your leadership programs, uh, including strategic planning, staff and board development. We talk about community engagement and some of the specifics that he's gone through in terms of a nonprofit merger because the work group is actually three distinct organizations that have come together. Lots to unpack here and think about, so don't forget to check out the show notes. Uh, For this episode, it's number 128. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find all of the resources that Logan and I discuss, as well as more information on what he's doing, and certainly more about the work group and the three affiliated organizations under that umbrella. Speaking of resources on our website, make sure you connect with us while you're there. We are on most of the primary social media platforms and would be happy to keep you connected to us through our email list. We have a weekly newsletter that goes out, and including information on episodes just like this one. And we'd also be happy to talk to you about your nonprofit organization or your personal journey into nonprofit leadership. Let us know if we can be uh, assistance and maybe talk more about your next steps. We have coaching, training, and a unique mastermind program that might be of interest. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Logan Herring. Logan, thank you for joining me on the path. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about this conversation because you have navigated some remarkable organizational and community building achievements that I know our listeners are going to benefit from, you know, not to mention your journey in nonprofit leadership. So thank you for being here. And let's start with that. Logan, you could have done a lot of things as you kind of came out of college and had career opportunities. Why did you go into nonprofit leadership? After I graduated college, my brother calls me one day as I was leaving work and he says, hey, how would you like to help kids like your nephew out and make $40,000 a year doing it? 
Now, as a 22, 23-year-old, when you hear $40,000 a year, that sounded like a lot of money. Absolutely. So like, okay, I'm down. Let's do it. <laughs> so my brother, I pulled my best friend in. We started to meet. We, we brought some other friends and people in. Uh, and we just started to meet and meet and meet. And eventually, we started our own nonprofit called Delaware Elite. And it was all about uh, taking basketball and using it as a carrot for students, student athletes, inner city kids, and providing them with holistic support to make them well-rounded individuals, um, and then use basketball as that carrot to drive them. So they were participating in these activities. So we did everything from um, SAT prep to etiquette classes. They had monitoring sheets that they had to get turned in uh, every week in order to play on the weekends. We took them all over the country to some of the best basketball tournaments. But in order to play in the tournaments, they had to do everything else that we demanded of them. Right. And we would we would take them to the best accommodations, the best hotels. They would have the best uniforms. They would have to pay very little to participate. And for those that couldn't afford it, they would, uh, you know, we provide them scholarships. So I did that for about 10 years. But that was how I got introduced more to nonprofit leadership. Um, as a 14 year old, I had always worked at nonprofits. I worked at the Boys and Girls Club. Uh, I attended a Boys and Girls Club up until the working age of 14. And I said, I want to make some money and I want to work here. And I was a camp counselor. When I was in college during the summertime, I worked with inner city youth because I went to Goucher College in Towson, Maryland. So I worked with inner city youth from Baltimore in the summertime. So services kind of been in my bloodline. And we could probably talk about that in a little bit with my right. grandfather. But um, it's something that I have just been a part of and you know, when I came home from college, I wanted to provide a solution for those that look like me that didn't have the access that I had. It's fantastic. And I knew that story would be powerful. And you and I've talked a little bit about it in our previous conversation. But I wonder, Logan, do you still bring lessons from those early nonprofit leadership experiences even to this day? I mean, what do you still, I guess, bring from that early experience that maybe helps you even now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, about five years into running Delaware Elite as the executive director, um, we faced probably the, well, definitely the most horrific incident that impacted our entire organization and all the families and people involved. Um, one of our student athletes, his name is Stanley, um, suffered a home invasion and him and his mother were shot and his mother died in his arms. Oh. And um, when I got to the hospital, they said, Coach Logan, he doesn't want to talk to anybody but you. So I walk into the room. This was before trauma-informed care was a buzz term that people used or we trained for. Um, and it was at that moment that I realized that as much as we were doing, we weren't doing enough. And we weren't doing enough because we were trying to do everything. And I would not allow that to happen in my current role um, as the CEO of the work group. So we've adopted one of our core values, which is, you know, we call it the Thanksgiving Day model, uh, which really means that we ask all of our partners to bring their best dish to the table. Yep. Uh, we don't try to cook the entire meal because we can't be experts at everything. And what that allows us to do is really have an abundance theory versus a scarcity mentality. Often in this nonprofit world, we focus on, well, this is my relationship with the funder and I don't want to share it, or this is my partnership, I don't want to share it. And we often you know, make decisions based upon fear, scarcity, and lack. 
which is a wrongheaded decision. So right. with the Thanksgiving Day model, we say, oh, you're, you want to do something? All right, what are you good at? Bring that to the table. And there's plenty of room at the table. And at the end of the dinner, like at my house, there's always plenty of leftovers. So we have just seen an abundance of resources because of the way we approach the work. And that, I believe, is the secret ingredient to um, our success. Love that Thanksgiving analogy. As we record this roughly a month away from the actual Thanksgiving, it's great <laughs> that you lift it up, but lift it up, frankly, in an even more important way. And wow, what a powerful lesson you had to deal with and learn from. And I know you continue to build community because of experiences like that. In fact, before we unpack some of your current experience, talk about what is the work group that you now currently lead? Yeah, so the work group is three separate nonprofits that work collaboratively as one. So the Warehouse, Reach Riverside, and Kingswood Community Center. Um, collectively, we are leading a $250 million holistic revitalization that includes 600 brand new mixed income homes currently under construction. Uh, we will be replacing our existing Kingswood Community Center, which is about 17,000 square feet now. The new building will be almost maybe more than 100,000 square feet, a $41 million facility. Uh, where we'll have our early learning academy, our senior center, state-of-the-art rec recreational facilities, a partnership with uh, Christiana Care Healthcare System, which would bring primary care and other health services. Um, and we're currently having conversations with some other potential collaborators and tenants for the building. Um, and then the warehouse is a state-of-the-art teen center where we were gifted a $3.6 million 43,000 square foot facility by Capital One. We put $3 million in renovations into the building. And our teams work with the architects to design it, to uh, decide all of the furniture, color scheme, and programs and services that take place in the building. And my board co-chair at the warehouse is an 18-year-old um, that just went off to college. So the one constant theme and our number one core value is uh, community first. We, when we make decisions, we make decisions based upon what's best for the community, not our own self-interest. And that has driven all of the work that we do. Logan, it's a remarkable community collaboration. I wonder, did you find, uh, in other words, do research on other national models? Or is what you're doing in some ways very unique? How, how did you kind of entertain that overall project, if so you will? This will probably be the second. I think this is the second time I'm saying this phrase, and it won't be the last. Um, it's one of <laughs> it's intentional, core, right? It's yeah. one of our other core values, which is yes and. Yeah, so yep. the model is unique, but it's also a model that we follow. We're part of a national network called Purpose Built Communities. Yep. There are 28 members in this network. We are following the model that started back in 1995 in a neighborhood called East Lake outside of Atlanta, Georgia in Decatur. Yep. Um, it's a holistic approach, high quality mixed income housing, cradle to college and career pipeline, community health and wellness. Um, it's a three-pronged approach, but it has to be led by a nonprofit organization that oversees that. And that's what REACH Riverside is. REACH is an acronym. I love creating acronyms. Uh, REACH <laughs> stands for those three pillars, redevelopment, education, and community health. So it is a model. However, what makes us distinct is the way we've structured three organizations together and are actually overseeing services that are being delivered. And Every other purpose-built community, the community quarterback doesn't oversee direct service. They just bring people to the table. Right. Um, so our ability to oversee direct services um, really sets us apart from other communities. So that's why, you know, it's a yes and. You and I both are talking to other nonprofit leaders that are probably 
considering merging with other organizations or being pressured in some cases, they feel that. Um, are, are there lessons you've learned that help you evaluate, yeah, uh, this is a good time to, to collaborate or perhaps maybe not? Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's really, let's let's set apart nonprofits for a second. So when you look out into this, um, let's say into the business world, the top performing businesses focus on the consumer. Um, Netflix, Uber, Amazon. It's the customer experience. Yep. If you listen to the customers, that would drive you to make your business successful. So let's bring it back to the nonprofit world. Um, I was actually talking to my colleague today and, I, and from this day forward, well, maybe not this day forward, I'm really going to work on it. I'm not using the term nonprofit anymore. Interesting. I'm going to use the term or phrase or whatever you want to categorize it is as uh, tax exempt business. Love I that. think nonprofits traditionally don't operate as businesses, and that's where we fail. Businesses cannot do anything without making a profit. We make a profit, and then we return that profit back into the work, back into the community. So tax exempt business from here on out, if I say nonprofit again, <laughs> strike this. I can edit that. Uh, I can edit that edit, out of this episode. It, out. it didn't okay. come from me. Tax exempt business. And if we focus on... So the point I'm trying to make is if we focus on our consumer, our customers, our client, and really do what's best for our consumers and our clients, we are going to listen to them and bring them to the table and have them be a part of the solution. I believe that tax exempt businesses exist to provide and fill a gap, not to be in business forever. So my personal goal for the work that we're doing is to put ourselves out of business because when the community becomes self-sufficient, then we will ultimately put ourselves out of business. And that yep. is the North Star. Or we'll just move on to another neighborhood or another community that needs this type of support. Um, so we may be in business for a long time, but at the end of the day, not doing where, where we were doing it before for the community we were doing it before. And... Uh, Taxes and businesses, you heard it here first. Love it. That will likely make the show notes in a headline format somewhere, right? And, and <laughs> a couple points that you make that I'm intrigued by. One, so in, in considering a merger, you would probably look primarily at the business model. Is that fair? In other words, there might be programmatic advantages, but are, are you're going to be very intentional about assuring that it maintains a, a profitable tax-exempt business. Is that, is that fair? Absolutely. We're getting approached by a number of taxes and businesses, uh, a number of communities, um, clients, partners on how we can collaborate, acquire, merge. Um, we haven't acted on any of them at the moment. We have to make sure that what we're doing is done with fidelity and that things don't serve as a potential distraction or take us away from uh, what they call mission creeping. So um, we're still vetting those opportunities and making sure we have the bandwidth and capacity to continue to do what we do and then take on any other external opportunities. Um, so that's that's where we are now. But in terms of really, um, I would say, maximizing what we're doing with our organizations, uh, most taxes and businesses really want to skinny down and do more with less. Yep. We believe that, yeah, that, although that's true, we want to do more with more. And what I mean by that is that we have 
a team of development people. We have a team of marketing, communications folks, HR. We have a number of positions that most tax exempt businesses can't afford because they're doing it all with just the resources that one organization can bring to bear. Well, we have three organizations that work collaboratively together. So we share our resources by way of sharing our money, sharing our dollars, but we also share those positions. So that means we can attract, hire, retain the best talent, but that talent just doesn't focus on one of the organizations, it focuses on all three. And in terms of fundraising, we are more attractive because we have funders that might be interested in early learning. We have funders that might be interested in adult education or teens. And we say we have something for everyone except for people who really love puppies and cats. <laughs> so, Which, so, as you... so as there's very, very, um, I would say very rare that someone walks out of here and doesn't find a way to support the work that we're doing. How do you avoid mission creep? Because you're right, it's wonderfully comprehensive, but I guess you do have to evaluate in some cases that how I, that just simply spreads us too thin. Is that fair? And how do you kind of make that determination? Well, again, it's community first. And if it's anything that is going to be uh, the work that we're doing, it's a, if it's going to be a threat, a risk, or create a vulnerable situation for our community, we're not going to do it. Uh, so I, I would say that that's the number one decision is, is community first. If it's going to have a negative impact on our community, then we can't do it. And if that's spreading us too thin or distraction or whatever the case may be. So that's kind of how we gauge that. Yeah, I love that. And in fact, I love your example, too, of assuring the voice of those you serve is part of your process. Uh, I hear a lot of funders say that nonprofits, while well-intentioned, don't truly have the voice of those families or individuals they serve. And you mentioned literally, you've got an 18-year-old that totally understands the warehouse, I believe, right, in terms of a representative voice. Do, Do you assure that in all of your strategic planning efforts? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have representatives, not just an 18-year-old that's a co-chair of the board of the warehouse. We have residents that live in a neighborhood that are on the board of Reach Riverside. Um, our board chair of Kingswood Community Center used to live in Riverside and is um, and grew up and went to Kingswood. So, you know, we always bring the community back and empower them to be in positions to actually be a part of the change. Um, and we're not, we are doing focus groups and they are part of our master planning process. And we take them on trips to see what other communities have done. So they understand what's capable here. Um, but we go well beyond what I think most communities or most organizations would do uh, to make sure that the voice is not just heard, but those individuals are empowered to be a part of the solutions. Yeah, it's very impressive. And again, I would say best practice and many of our colleagues, Logan, don't do that or you have yet to kind of figure that out. And it leads to kind of the uh, big five you and I talked about in terms of leadership elements for tax exempt businesses. Notice I'm going to try to caution myself against it. using. I love it. Thank you. You're putting pressure on me though. The title of this podcast does in fact include that phrase you don't want me to use, but let's talk about strategic planning. In other words, you used an, a fantastically compelling phrase. Our job is to put ourselves out of business. So have you literally mapped that out? How do you build that premise into your strategic plan? So this is a great question because we were talking about this earlier this week. Uh, I honestly don't even, I can't stand the word strategic planning. Um, (laughs) Okay. We'll talk about that here. So so we're going to change this one too. Um, Strategic execution. Got it. That's your distinction, right? 
That's my distinction. And so planning is a part of execution. Yep. But understanding that when you are an implement, implementer and an executor, um, you have to be able to pivot on the drop of a dime. And with strategic plans, what we often see happen is that, oh, we're doing this three-year strategic plan or this five-year strategic plan. And we spend months in retreats and sessions putting together this plan and we sit it on the shelf and we're like, we feel accomplished, we did something. And at the end of the day, it really comes down to the leadership of the organization about where the direction of that organization is gonna go. The strategic plan might inform some of that, but at the end of the day, we are dealing with populations and communities and clients who actually live a life. And a life is a complex thing to navigate. So when we, for example, um, launched an initiative this year called Empower, Economic Mobility Places Ownership Within Everyone's Reach. It's focused on a lot of different facets, financial capabilities, um, workforce, um, health, the list goes on. And when we got into doing the work with the families, what we're seeing is two major things pop out. One is I'm in crisis. I don't know what you're talking about, financial literacy or health. <laughs> like I can't pay my rent. Uh, get my me through tomorrow, to right? Cut off. Like yeah. exactly. We are in a crisis. Yeah. Help me alleviate that crisis first. So we're like, throw all the, the plans out the window. We're calling, you know, of potential funders. Um, the electric company, leveraging our relationships, like we just need to get this family stabilized. The other thing is the parents are coming to us and they said, we need more he mental health support. Like I need a therapist. I need a counselor. Like I am struggling. Right. So then we go back to our, to Christiana Karen and say, look, we need you guys to beef up the mental health support because we're not meeting the needs there. Listening to the customers. That's what yep. it comes down to. Yep. Now, if we don't have the talent, the leadership, the capabilities, um, the flexibility, the desire to listen to the customers and to be able to actually execute, then if we went back to that strategic plan and we would say to the customers, that's not our strategic plan. We're not doing that because that's not what we plan to do. Right. We fail our community. So that's why I call it strategic execution, because we have to be ready to call an audible and do what we need to do to respond to the community. Another example, Hurricane Ida yep. devastated our community about a month ago. The pandemic devastated our community last year. In response to both, last year we raised $500,000, distributed $285,000 direct cash. We created our own stimulus package. The community, each family got $250 per month for five months. 400 Chromebooks, 15,000 meals. We moved our census count rate from less than 60% to over 84%, which would be a $6 million return of federal funding to the state of Delaware. If we signed people up for GED programming, Department of Labor, Workforce, just responding to make sure that our community, no pun intended, could just survive and stay afloat. Right. This year right. with Hurricane Ida, within a matter of a few weeks, we have raised $750,000. Each family and small business impacted by the hurricane is going to receive $2,000 at least. And those that have been displaced is going to receive $5,000. Three days after the flood, we had 22 state agencies in our facility. So our community have access to those agencies that they couldn't get on the phone. That's not in our strategic plan. Right. So I, 
it's strategic execution. And we could spend a lot of time on number one, but I know there are four more. And hopefully that response. <laughs> but that no, you, you got my attention. And it's it reminds me of a boss I had, Logan, the one time said, yeah, stop planning to plan. You know, we have meetings just exactly. to plan another meeting, right? And plan a committee. So, all right. So I'm an executive director and I'm like, all right, Logan, I hear you. I want to do strategic execution. So how do I do that? Is it, I'm, I'm guessing your meetings literally lead to action immediately versus more meetings, but, or you tell me, how do I do that if, if I indeed agree with your premise? Well, we have a phrase here. <laughs> we got a lot of sayings around here. That's all right. Um, so when people ask me, okay, I, I request something. I say, hey, I need um, this flyer for an event, or I need a graphic for a funder that I'm meeting with. And they'll say, well, when do you need it? And I say, I need it at the speed of work, which means yesterday. Yep. So we move with a sense of urgency around here. We don't sit um, in our cushy chairs in our office and say, well, I've accomplished enough for the week. Um, let me go ahead and, and, and relax. No, our community's problems don't stop at five o'clock on Friday. Now, I respect people's time to recover um, to, you know, maintain their mental health and energy levels. I do respect that. Right. But our work requires us sometimes to work long hours, to work weekends, and then we'll respect the fact that you need to recharge your battery. And so I'll talk about that probably, you know, soon with what we've done with mental health um, here within the work group. But right. it's, it's, I mean, at the end of the day, it's really about responding, like I said, and putting the community first. And in order to do that, um, we have to move with a sense of urgency. And, and also, we have to make sure we have the right people. It, it comes down to people and the right people to execute. And if you are skimping on what you want to compensate people or the, the culture of the workplace isn't um, positive, you're not going to be able to have the people to deliver. And if your people are happy, they'll make your customers or your clients happy. Yep. I'm noting the speed of work among many phrases that you have lifted up. I love it. And in fact, I think that's responsive to our listeners saying, all right, what do I do? It's like, all right, that becomes a cultural thing, right? For you, Logan, you've just in, embedded these concepts into your culture. In fact, it's a good segue, though, to the second point you and I were talking about, and you just mentioned it. It's all about the talent. So tell me your leadership approach, if you would, particularly to building the kind of team you have. And then maybe we could also talk about the boards that you have assimilated as well. Yeah. So it's all about people want to be a part of a winning team. Um, the visibility that we have in the community creates a certain excitement. So this applies to staff and board members. Uh, when we approach people about potentially joining us for both respectively, it's not a hard sell. It's not a hard sell with fundraising, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, it's just not a hard sell at all because people have heard about it so much. They just want to be a part of this winning team. Um, in terms of staff, we are actually maturing and evolving as an organization. What we've seen in the past is that we would attract staff or talent, as we would call them. And then in three months, we've already outgrown what they're capable of doing. So because of the pace of this work, W-R-K, yep. um, we have to really think about where we are going and where we are going to be and recruit for the future, not for the present. Um, so that's one thing that I'll be honest that we are now, I wouldn't say struggling with, um, but that we have to face. Right. Given the shortage of talent and everybody's feeling this crisis in any industry, um, everybody's vying for the same people. 
Um, so what can we do to set ourselves apart? And that's, you know, being sought after. And we want to be sought after. Uh, our marketing materials, the things that we're doing, the holistic approach to how we're doing it uh, really sets us apart in this tax exempt business world. And I think it sets <laughs> us apart in any sector, honestly. Yeah, no, and, and I want to underline your point that you're not just recruiting for the now, but you, you want to recruit people who can grow with you. How do you evaluate that? Uh, I guess you, you just want them to demonstrate that I'm willing to learn and get better with you, or, or are there some nuances that you try to assess as you bring somebody on? I actually wish I had an answer for this one. We are still, <laughs> trying, to, we are still trying to figure that out. Um, and I would say in our infancy stages, it, it came down to the why. The people were passionate about the work and they understood yep. it. And they may have come from some circumstances that would allow them to relate. That was good enough for us. Then it was like, all right, what type of skill sets do you have? Like, if you can go out and interact with community, can you write a report that speaks to that so we can then regurgitate that to our investors on type of outcomes and impact that we're having? Right. And then it's, all right, do you have critical thinking skills where the executive team doesn't have to be involved with the every day-to-day tasks that you are doing because if we're involved in doing that work with you, then it doesn't allow us to be our best selves in the executive level to kind of see the forest before the tree above the trees. So that's where we are right now. It's trying to find folks that have those critical thinking skills. Um, as they would tell you, common sense isn't common. Yeah, right. Um, and another thing is the entrepreneurial spirit. So I would say the two things that we're looking maybe three, three things that we're looking most at right now. Um, Writing skills, critical thinking, and entrepreneurial spirit. And entrepreneurial spirit is really do what you have to do to get the job done. Yes, yes. As long as it's it's ethically done. Yeah, right. (laughs) That's a caveat. Let me just just say that. (laughs) Um, And if that requires you to work with colleagues, uh, that requires you to work with partners, that requires you to work with board members, do what you knew, need to do to get it done because you're doing it for the community and you're not doing it for yourself. And that's kind of where we are. We're also, you know, to be honest, we we believe we're outgrowing the local marketplace. So we're now engaging with professional firms to help us acquire that talent. We are starting to now have a regional and national presence and becoming an expert in this field. Uh, so we need people that, again, can grow with us, but also help us grow. Would you entertain hybrid work situations? In other words, if someone's remote or do you need them to literally be with you in community? So we're already doing somewhat of a hybrid role. Um, we would like them to be local, but hybrid is an option. Okay. If that makes sense. So we need you in the office when we need you in the office, whether it's being a part of a tour or an event. But if you're within driving distance, then that shouldn't be much of an issue. You'd allow the flexibility maybe for that. Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah. Get the, hey, get the job done. <laughs> exactly. you get the job done, get the job done. <laughs> but we do need you to be local in order to get that job done, at least with the work that we're doing. Understood. Same principles apply in many respects to your board recruitment and board development, or how would you speak to that? Not necessarily. So okay. as the board meets not as frequently as the staff does. Right. Um, for example, that East Lake neighborhood that I talked about in Atlanta, the president and CEO 
of the Eastlake Foundation, who's been doing that work for 11 years, um, is now on our board at Reach Riverside. Wow. So what we saw with the pandemic is the ability for people to function in a virtual space. And we said, look, if there's talent out there and we can take advantage of that talent, even if they are not local, um, let's do it. And he has made the commitment to be here twice a year if needed um, for meetings or to be a part of any events. Uh, so yeah, it, it doesn't necessarily extend to the boards, um, but we would like them to be proximate to the work in one way, shape or form. And, and he's already doing that work in the local context in Atlanta. So he gets it. That's excellent. So you could literally involve national talent, couldn't you, through the technology that the board dynamic allows, right? Yep. And I've even extended that learning um, and opened some people's thoughts and eyes in other organizations that I'm involved with on the board level. And they are now starting to adopt that as well. Yeah. I'm going to encourage our listeners to think about that because perhaps if there's one silver lining element to this pandemic is the comfort maybe we've gained in the technology, right? The Zoom room might allow Absolutely. us to acquire talent. Um, Absolutely. I'm going to encourage our listeners, of course, to check out your website, your social media. You do a fantastic job of getting the word out. But I would say, Logan, you could spend all your time doing community engagement stuff. So how do you strategically spend your time to do just that? Get the word out into the audiences you need to, but maybe you could speak to that so other non oh, sorry, I almost said nonprofit leaders, um, <laughs> other tax exempt leaders, but because you know they're balancing that right. They, all the absolutely. So wonder if you could speak to how do we strategically do community engagement. So wonderful podcast like the one I'm on now <laughs> is a way of doing it. Um, I literally tell people all the time that I want you to get sick of seeing me, get sick of hearing about the work group. Um, get sick of seeing our posts and, and um, news about us. Um, I, I don't think I've turned down one interview, regardless of it's a, somewhere that's not even local, right. because the greatest form of advertisement is word of mouth. The other, uh, and, and with that comes, if you're thinking about it, like an experience at a restaurant, you'll get one positive review for every 10 negative ones. Right. So every experience that a person has, whether it's me being on a podcast or someone touring one of our facilities or interacting with the person at the front desk on the phone, every time we have a touch point with someone, that's an opportunity for them to spread the word. And the greatest advertisers for us are the clients, the community, yes. the customers. So we just want to make every experience the best experience, no matter who is interacting, interacting with us. And that is the greatest form of community engagement and getting the word out. Well put. And uh, let me interrupt these top five topics for a question for you. You strike me as someone obviously very focused, very organized. Do you consciously think about a percentage of your time devoted to your primary leadership duties? For example, this community engagement thing that you're like, yeah, I'll get out anywhere, speak to anybody. Does that roughly translate to like, all right, 20% of my time is going to be spent in community engagement. And thus, you know, for a nonprofit leader listening, they're like, yeah, how do I balance all this? I wonder how you do just that. Yeah. So you asked me two questions. And the first one, I, I don't believe you had the audacity to ask me if I plan this out with 20% here and 15% <laughs> there. There is no absolute way I plan this out. 
Um, but to answer your second question, and I, and I think this would um, probably be able to answer both of them to some extent, is I have, I and we have built a tremendous team that allow me to do this. Right. Um, I have people that work with me that I trust, that I believe in to carry out the day to day and allow me to do what I do best, which is talk to folks like yourself um, to create the vision, to share the vision and to really garner the resources that is needed to carry out the vision. So when I started this work five and a half years ago, uh, I was the chief cook and bottle washer. Right. And I did not have the time to do all of this because it was a flat organization, flat organization everyone answered to me. Um, and now we have built an infrastructure that I have two people that report to me. And those two people take care of everything. And I do those three things that I just told you that I do. So um, great answer. I yeah. understand that what I'm doing is time consuming and it takes away from the real work that needs to be done. Uh, but we have another saying is remember when we prayed for what we have today. And five and a half years ago, um, I prayed for where we are today, but I didn't think we'd be here at this moment. It'd be much further down the line. So I'm very, very grateful and appreciative. Uh, and I look forward to you know the next few years and seeing how far we can take this. Yeah, absolutely. And well put and in both strategic in your sense of you do what needs to be done, but you've been thoughtful in that structure to allow you to do what you are doing so well. Um, all right, let's talk about the next topic, a headline perhaps for most tax exempt business leaders. Notice okay. my phrasing there. Um, That's right. They either love it or they hate it, you know, fundraising. Tell me how you approach fundraising because clearly you need the resources to do all the great work you're doing. So how do you approach it? Well, I think in the majority of the cases, people love things that they're good at um, yeah. and that they're successful at. We've yep. been successful at fundraising, so I love it. <laughs> right. You asked me five years ago, I was like, oh, God. Not so much. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it, everything's relative, right? So when I started 2016, I mean, we got a $1,000 check. I'm emailing the board. And like, look, celebrating what came in and yeah. we're celebrating. Um, this sounds really, really arrogant right now. Um, but I probably don't email the board unless it's like at least maybe $250,000, $500,000 yeah. um, that comes in. Yeah. Um, just to, I mean, for example, in the last two years, we have raised over $64 million. Um, Remarkable. This year yep. alone, we have raised over forty-two. So that puts things into context. Yep. Um, and, and how we do it, I think that, you know, you probably can summarize this conversation that we had prior to this point. There are a lot of things that go into it. Um, consistency, getting the word out, being visible, um, impact, people seeing the results. Uh, it's just, there's so many things that are involved in fundraising. It's not about the ask. The ask right, is right. the easiest thing. Um, I actually anticipate when I ask, it's just how much are you writing the check for? But I know you're writing a check because I believe in the work that we are, we're doing. I believe that no one compares to the work that we're doing. I believe we have the most important project in the entire state. I believe we have the most important project in the entire country. Um, you can argue with me. That's my personal opinion. But I believe that every organizational leader should feel that way. And if you feel that way, people 
would get it, they would understand it, would resonate with them. And when people give you the gift of trust, because trust is a gift, um, they're giving you that funding, that is a, that's a gift, it's a, it's a gift of trust. And I wanna make sure that I don't betray anyone's trust um, with that gift. It's well put, you're, you're not fundraising, are you? You're really, you're partnering with someone to invest in something you feel strongly about, which clearly has been successful. And I, I wonder if that framework or perspective would help other leaders feel more comfortable as you have gotten in your role. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. All right, let's talk about one that uh, you and I both know a lot of our colleagues in this sector are struggling uh, with stress, uh, overwork, mental health issues for sure. I, I think there's some good news in that mental health is getting more attention, but you see it directly in your community. So tell me about what you're doing to help with the self-care, the you know things that help keep your team and those you serve better equipped. Yeah, well, we're dealing with a community that's been made vulnerable. And um, with that comes a lot of trauma. And there's a term that's associated with people that work with individuals who have experienced trauma and it's called vicarious trauma, where you take on the traumatic experiences that those clients or customers um, with whom you're working. So with us, um, a burnout is real, vicarious trauma is real. Um, and it takes a toll on everyone uh, that's in this organization. So one thing I did is I, I noticed that last year and I noticed it within myself. And I reached out to a partner of ours, uh, Jewish Family Services. And I said, hey, can we partner on something? And it was Mental Health Mondays. And what I wanted to establish was a day where we just focused on ourselves and our mental and emotional health and recharging our batteries. So make a long story short, the outcome is for the past year, every Monday, you are not allowed to have meetings in our organization. Interesting. No meetings whatsoever. Um, also, half of the day, morning or afternoon, whichever you prefer, you have to do health-related activities. You cannot work. No work is allowed for half of your day. And you very liberal with that. So you can take a nap, you can sleep in, you can go for a walk, you can work out, you can meal prep, you can watch TV, whatever you need to do to get yourself prepared for the work week. And then we offered in partnership with JFS, group counseling sessions and access to individual counseling. And I'm gonna tell you that this past week, my mental health Monday saved my insanity. Really? My sanity, not my yeah. insanity. It saved my, <laughs> right. insanity. Saved my sanity. <laughs> right, right. I, I was traveling um, nonstop for about six or seven straight days, and I didn't have an opportunity to take a deep breath. Yep. And Monday morning for a few hours, being able to decompress, watch some sports center, some some uh, Fox Sports one, whatever the case happened, happened to be, I was fine and I have been good. And I don't know what what's today? Is it Thursday or Friday? I think it's Friday. It's Friday. See, I don't even know yeah. because that's how good I'm feeling right now. Refreshed for sure. Like I could go for another day because I thought it was Thursday. And that literally, like I wasn't joking. I didn't know. What right, right, right. But um, 
it just it refreshed me for the entire week. And a lot of people call it the Sunday scaries or what have you because right, you got all these right. emails and things you need to do Monday morning. You know you're going to get behind. We don't have that issue here. And, and you've so seen results. We and we were just recognized by the lieutenant governor this week um, with an award recognizing this program within our organization. I'll be accepting it next week. That's fantastic. And I'm, I know the answer to this, but you're seeing positive results, not just in yourself, but I take it your team morale has to be better oh, as a result. People appreciate it. And I make fun of some of my colleagues because they're going to get their nails done, and, <laughs> um, massages. But hey, hey yeah. and, and I'll call them like, I know you're not trying to bother me. I'm not the host. So they'll put me in my place <laughs> if I overstep at times. Yeah, yeah. You made the rules that allow them to do whatever they want. Hey, so don't I, call them I on it. it. I appreciate <laughs> right. it. Uh, Logan, this is fantastic. Uh, I guess you strike me, of course, is, is a very driven achievement-oriented person that has, of course, brought organizations along with you. How do you personally set goals? And have you found certain resources help you? Um, I, I, I'm almost certain you're not satisfied even with your own performance. And I wonder, how do you kind of motivate and, I guess, orchestrate the next level of success personally? Is it that apparent? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't take me long. Let's put it that way. So again, I'm not the planner. I, I don't set, well, you know what? I'm not even going to lie. I did. I set six specific goals, um, which have like sub goals underneath of them this year for the organization. Yep. And when I say the organization, the, the staff, the boards and committees, um, and we call them our big rocks. And those big rocks um, really align every all of our stakeholders around what we need to accomplish this year. So I'm in the process of doing that with my leadership team and our executive committee for next year. Um, and again, you know, it's not necessarily a strategic plan, but it is strategic execution. Sure. It's what have we accomplished this year? Where are we as an organization? What do we need to accomplish next year? We're doing restructuring of our staff, restructuring of our committees. That wasn't on our strategic plan, but we see this is where we need to do, need to be to advance this work and really respond to the community's needs. So, you know, one way to, I guess, summarize it is the way I set goals is what needs to happen in order to benefit the community at the greatest, I would say, clip. And, and that's where we are with, you know, in terms of setting goals, or at least personally. But I am that person that last week got $26.4 million from the state of Delaware. And when the special assistant to the governor told me that, um, I was on the phone with my board chair, Charles McDowell, who you may know. <laughs> Sounds familiar, yes. And him and I approach things differently at times, <laughs> most of the time, Yes. Um, which, which makes this a, a, a great union because as he's saying, wow, that is tremendous. I'm saying on the tail end of that, okay, so we have some other things we asked for. We could have done <laughs> so better. how can we get those addressed? <laughs> and she responded and had an answer for me. Wow. Um, so again, you know, anyone else perhaps would say, wow, 26.4 million. But I know that isn't going to cut it. I know that's not going to solve all of our problems. And I am here for a reason. And that reason is to continue to drive things at the speed of work. And so um, we got the answer that we were looking for. And now we're on to the next thing. And um, so I don't know if that answers the question, but hopefully it does. It's a great answer. And but it, it doesn't surprise me that you're not satisfied, frankly, with there's more work to be done, satisfied. right? Yeah, I'm never satisfied. But I, I have a saying that I adopted. I also coach varsity soccer and basketball and my head coach for, for basketball 
would always tell the team good enough never is. Right. Right. Logan, where do you go for help? Have you found certain resources in your leadership journey that have helped you along the way? Are you self-taught, so to speak, or what? (laughs) (laughs) The man above. Yes, indeed. Um, I go to him. I have a therapist. Like I'm might be one of the most transparent people, you know, but I also, (laughs) um, there's a, I read a recent book because I'm a part of a lot of like leadership cohorts and such. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's called Believe in People by Charles Koch of all people. Right. Um, So I'm in a, I'm a part of a cohort with the uh, Stand Together Foundation that is supported by the Koch Foundation. And they had us read this book and everything he said, I was like, that's it. That's it. And believe in people is a, I believe the, the subtitle is a, um, a bottom up approach for a top down uh, way of leading or something along those lines. Sure, sure. Along those lines. And it's really about believing, empowering people, um, kind of like those, the Maslow's hierarchy. Right. Need, um, but the ultimate goal is for self-actualization. And that's when everybody in your organization believes that they're contributing something and they're doing it um, and they're, they're success, not only successful, um, but it makes them feel good at the same time. And when you reach that level, which I believe I personally am in my journey, um, there's never a day where you wake up and go to work and like, man, I don't feel like being here because you know you're a part of something great. And, and I think that's what we're trying to create here. Love it. A, a perfect among many wonderful quotes that I am jotting down. And I'm sure our listeners are pondering. Uh, and speaking of our listeners, and perhaps some that are thinking about getting into this tax-exempt business leadership, what do you tell them? When somebody approaches you and says, hey, Logan, I'd like to get into this type of work, what advice would you offer? Well, I'll first tell them that it's Thanksgiving every day here. So tell me what dish you're bringing to pull up the seat. Yes. And that means, can you be a a colleague of mine working in the work group? Can you be a board member? Can you be a partner, a committee member? Um, Can you just be somebody that, you know, I might call and say, hey, I need your, your advice on this. Right. Uh, but, you know, I'm selfish in that regard as I just I'm very competitive and I want to win. And if I see talent, I'm picking up the phone and say, hey, you know, <laughs> come on and join I me. Right. You, come on and join. Come on and join. That's great. And again, that the spirit of that, I think other leaders can benefit from, you know, don't waste time. You need to identify and recruit that talent. And clearly you have done it. Um, you know, this question was coming as I ask all my guests. You've already given me one, at least one good book. Is there one, though, you might recommend to our listeners that maybe has helped you along the way? Yeah, um, The Color of Law is another good one, yep. particularly for the work that I'm doing. It really, um, by Richard Rothstein, it really talks about um, housing segregation, um, things that the federal government have done over many, many years, hundreds of years. Indeed. Um, to create the conditions that are taking place and communities like Riverside. And I think regardless of the work that you do, it's helpful to understand the true history of this country Um, because whether you're a person who was a recipient or a benefit or had the privileges um, that this country has allowed or you're somebody who has been denied denied opportunities such as myself or my grandfathers, my great-grandfathers and such, um, it's good to understand that because it, it puts things in a certain context that allows you to understand why people are in the situations they are. And I, for a long time, I lived with a lot of resentment because I didn't understand why I grew up in a certain neighborhood or why I didn't have the things that my classmates had at my private school. Right. And so 
reading that book really, it level set me. Um, and it gave me a different appreciation for my family. It gave me a different appreciation for the work that I do and for folks that want to do this work. So um, that that's a good one. Fantastic recommendation. It has, in fact, been recommended to me. It was eye-opening. And someone who comes from privilege, uh, it's important reading for all of us. And I certainly want to acknowledge that and glad you're going to lift it up. And we will lift it up as part of this episode's show notes for sure. Um, Logan, this has been fantastic. Um, where can people go to find out more about you and the great work you're doing through the work group? Yeah, so you can uh, go to our website. Um, I have, like I said, I have three organizations, so we have a bunch of websites. There's <laughs> right. one website that pulls it all together, and that's workgroup.org, W-R-K-group.org. Uh, and that will direct you to the various websites uh, that we have. You can also email me directly at lherring, herring like the fish, uh, at reachriverside.org. Logan's fantastic. We'll put all that in the show notes. And certainly wish you well and continued success in the wonderful work you're doing. And thank you for joining me on the path. It is my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me. This has been a fun way to spend my Friday afternoon now that I know it's Friday. <laughs> exactly. The weekend is here. Thanks, Logan. Right. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Logan as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide you on your professional journey and maybe make you rethink how you lead right now. Don't forget the show notes. They are available on our website, patmcdowell.com, and you can find out more about Logan and the wonderful purpose-built community he's building into as a national model. As always, please share this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to this podcast. Just go to the podcast page, the new and improved podcast page at patmcdowell.com, and you'll see the follow button, which will link you to all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features we're producing every month. And if you like this episode, you'll find many more on that same podcast page. Just scroll down and you can see any of the wonderful guests that I've been fortunate to have on here, now totaling almost 130. Thanks, as always, for what you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.